Let curiosity be your guide as Scientific American Travel takes you on a journey to faraway ports. For information, go to scientificamerican.com slash travel. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast, Science Talk, posted on May 29th, 2012. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... He knew that he had been infected in 1978. He felt entirely well. He'd never taken any anti-HIV medications and um, essentially was asking me, why am I still alive? That's Bruce Walker. He's professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and director of the Reagan Institute, a joint effort of the Massachusetts General Hospital, MIT, and Harvard. And he's the author of an article in the July issue of Scientific American Magazine called Controlling HIV about rare individuals who never develop AIDS after being infected by HIV and what they can teach medical researchers that might benefit the millions of other people who are at risk for AIDS after an HIV infection. We spoke by phone. Dr. Walker, great to talk to you today. Uh, Nice to talk to you. So there's a fascinating article in our July issue about the fact that there are these people who will get infected with HIV and deal with it as if it were any other infection, basically. Yeah. Um, I was trained as a physician and really in the beginning had no interest in doing research. I, um, I had done it briefly in college and felt that it was really pretty irrelevant, the things that I was working on. I ended up going to medical school and was quite excited about taking care of patients When I finished medical school and started my internship at Mass General Hospital, I assumed that the doctors there knew every disease that existed and that uh, it it would be just a fantastic place to train. Um, And then something very strange happened. Um, a, A patient came into the emergency room who had a disease that none of the doctors there had ever seen before. People thought it was probably some weird genetic variant or something that uh, that we would probably never see again. But in essence, it was a young man whose immune system seemed to have completely collapsed. Uh, so I certainly took note of that case. And then um, shortly thereafter was meeting with a friend of mine who was training at another one of the Boston hospitals. And we got to talking and came to the realization that he had seen a patient almost identical to the one that I had seen at at, um, at Mass General. And that really shocked both of us and was really the first sense I got that there might actually be a new disease. Um, and it was really then um, uh, around that time that patients like this started showing up at hospitals around the country and it became clear that this was a that this was a new disease, and it was a number of years later that it was identified to be a virus. And um, we're talking about what about 1977, 78. So this was in um, this was in 1980 was when I started my internship, and 1981 was when I when I saw this patient. Mm-hmm. It was really seeing that patient that made me realize that. We as physicians on the front lines were going to be the first people to see new diseases. And it made me realize that if we didn't do research, we were not going to have anything to offer these patients. It was really quite disturbing and depressing at the beginning of the epidemic. Um, we really had nothing to offer these patients. 
At first, we didn't even know what they had. When we finally realized that they were infected with a virus, um, uh, we, we had no medications uh, to treat uh, this viral infection. You know, you, you bring up the fact that young people, I mean, if somebody's 20 today, they have lived their entire lives in a different environment because I remember being in New York City in the 70s, 80s, 90s, I had friends dropping like flies here. Yeah. No, I mean, it was... Different world. In those days, HIV infection was essentially a death sentence. Um, and a fast death sentence. Um, well, interestingly, most of the people that we saw... Um, in the beginning, we didn't know... We didn't have a diagnostic test for HIV. It was really a clinical diagnosis. Right. Somebody whose immune system had collapsed, who had particular risk factors. We knew it was... Um, it was associated with blood transfusions and with, um, um, uh, and with, um, it could be transmitted, uh, sexually, um, particularly among, um, groups that seem to be, be a particularly high risk, gay men in the, in the U.S. in particular. Um, but we had no idea really what the, um, um, you, you know, what the, what the underlying cause was, nor did we under, understand how many people actually had this new disease. We just, we would see them come in when their immune systems had collapsed. And generally at that point, the time until death was relatively short. What happened in 1985 was that a blood test became available that allowed us to figure out the number of people that were actually infected but not yet sick. And this is probably an important distinction to make. HIV is a is a viral infection. AIDS is the is the um, advanced stage of HIV infection when the immune system has been largely destroyed, and um, people end up with things called opportunistic infections, which are infections that um, normally the body's immune defenses would um, would fight against. But in in this situation where the immune system has been progressively destroyed, things that are normally quite benign now become lethal. What was happening was that in the hospital, we were getting a skewed representation of what the HIV epidemic was because we were seeing people that were sick enough to come to the hospital. Those that had not yet gotten sick hadn't come yet. Um, when we finally were able to diagnose them, we realized that there were there was this large population of people that had um, some evidence of immune dysfunction, but had not yet progressed to AIDS. We still at that point, though, believed that everybody that was infected would ultimately progress to AIDS. And, um, and that really was the, um, the, the, the general sense was that this was a uniformly lethal disease. And then in 1995, Bob Massey walks into your office. Yeah, so... I, as I said, I'm a, I'm a physician. I see patients, but I also do research. So I, I may see patients in the morning and get blood samples from them and go back to the laboratory in the afternoon and work on those samples to try and understand how the body fights infection and why it usually loses the battle with HIV. And pretty much, um, at, at in 1995, when Bob Massey arrived, I thought everybody ultimately lost that battle. He came in, though, with a quite different story. His story was that he knew that he had been infected in 1978. He felt entirely well. 
He'd never been, um, he'd never taken any anti-HIV medications and um, essentially was asking me, why am I still alive? Every doctor he had seen had told him that you could live with HIV infection essentially as long as he had lived, but you couldn't live longer than that. So he kept expecting that he was going to die. Um, little did he know that, um, uh, and little did they know that he was just an extreme outlier in this epidemic. What was really pivotal for me in seeing Bob Massey was that it was the first time I had come face to face with somebody who had clearly documented infection um, for 17 years, who was entirely well. And the other critical piece of information that we were able to get at that time was a, a new test had just become available experimentally. Um, Mark Feinberg, who was at the at MIT, was doing this test, which uh, allowed one to quantitate the amount of virus in the bloodstream. And so, you know, initially when I saw Bob, I thought this, he, he probably is not infected and he got a misdiagnosis. So I did another HIV antibody test, which um, detects whether people are infected. And in fact, he was infected. And then I sent his blood to Mark Feinberg, who measured the amount of virus in the bloodstream, and it was undetectable. So to me, this was just uh, almost unbelievable. Here was somebody, um, you know, who walked in from a, from a waiting room filled with people with advanced AIDS, who was clearly infected, who had been infected for longer than anybody had ever been documented to be infected, and he had no detectable virus in his bloodstream, yet he was clearly infected. And what got me so excited about this was that you know, the way that the immune system normally takes care of, of viral infections is, for many of them, you never eradicate the viruses from your body. They remain in your body for the rest of your life, but your immune system keeps them in check. So, for example, if you ever have mono um, or if you've ever had chickenpox, those viruses cause disease when they first attack, but your body mounts a defense against them your symptoms go away, you then feel entirely well. Virus still exists in sanctuaries in your body, but the immune system keeps it um, in, in check so that it can't cause disease. What we knew about those other diseases like chickenpox is that if you become severely immune de uh, suppressed, the virus can actually reactivate and cause disease again. So it's very clear that the immune system is actively controlling those viruses. Well, here for the first time, for me, I, I was sitting across the table from a, a from a person who was doing this to HIV, something I had had never thought possible. And so, at at that point, you know, even though this was a, a, a single patient, it became very clear that we needed to study him, and and in fact. That had been his motivation for coming in. He thought that if we were to study him, we might learn something that would be useful. Bob was, was really an exception. He, he was doing something that nobody else seemed to be doing. He was a clear outlier. And, um, and in medicine, it's finding these sorts of outliers that can often give you answers to the, 
people that aren't outliers as to what's as to what's going on. I mean, whatever was going on in Bob Massey was holding the virus in check, and it just felt as as I was talking to him that the that the answers were right there in his body as to as to how the immune system could get the upper hand against HIV. And what's also fascinating is he has a hepatitis C infection that's doing what hepatitis C would normally do. He doesn't have any special abilities to fight off hep C. Well, one of the remarkable things that we found as we started to study Bob was that even though he was controlling HIV exquisitely, he also had become infected with uh, another virus called hepatitis C virus, which um, which is also transmitted by blood products. Unlike his exquisite control of HIV, he was completely incapable of controlling hepatitis C virus. So it's not as if he had some, you know, global superpower strength in terms of his immune system. It was something that was, in this case, very specific to um, to HIV. In fact, the the um, but what happened in terms of his HCV infection is that he continued to deteriorate and uh, ultimately needed to have a liver transplant uh, to um, uh, uh, because his liver was destroyed by the hepatitis C virus. Right, and the liver transplant was fortunately successful. And well, that th- not only was the liver transplant successful, but it did something else that had been a dream of his uh, his entire life, which was it got rid of his hemophilia. It turns out that the transplanted liver makes the clotting factors that are missing in somebody with hemophilia. And so he now, with his liver transplant, has returned to full health and no longer has hemophilia. I mean, the, this guy, the sicker he gets, the better he gets. <laughs> Well, he's, uh, he's doing remarkably, remarkably well. You know, he's, um, he's just written, uh, a book that, um, that outlines his journey, um, of resilience, um, against, um, hemophilia, HIV, and hepatitis C, uh, called A Song in the Night. And, um, I'd, I'd recommend it for anybody who's, who's interested in hearing hearing more about uh, the remarkable battles he's fought and won. Amazing. So, you're, so you want to know, how is he doing this? Right. So my initial thought when I saw him is that if HIV is following the rules that other viruses follow, other chronic viral infections follow, then he would have to have um, a vigorous immune defense against HIV that we ought to be able to detect in his body. Um, and we, we had a simple assay to study that, looking for these, these cells called killer T cells, which are white cells that are sort of like an infantry on a search and destroy mission where they find infected cells and, and kill them. So that would be the case in measles or, or chickenpox or other, other infections. So the question was, did he have these, um, uh, did he have these killer cells present? He has no detectable virus in his bloodstream. How is he doing that? Well, there must be some evidence of a strong army there, um, keeping, keeping the virus in check. So we 
did an assay that uh, was being used, um, you know, routinely in the lab at that time and found that he had the strongest killer T-cell responses of anybody that we'd ever measured. That was pretty exciting, but it still left some questions open. Um, We knew that some people who had AIDS actually also had very strong killer T-cell responses, but what they lacked were um, were helper cell responses, which I'll sort of refer to as generals here. So if you're if you're going to have a coordinated defense against um, uh, an enemy like HIV, you need an infantry to actually engage the um, the enemy, and you need generals to help coordinate the attack. The the biggest hole in the immune repertoire in HIV infection was the lack of helper cells that um, are programmed to coordinate a defense against HIV. Those, those cells are, are generated early in, an, in a viral infection, and they're specific for that particular virus infection. It's like on-the-job training for generals. What we had found, the first experiments I had done 10 years earlier when I first entered the lab was I was looking for generals programmed to to coordinate an, an attack against HIV. And what I found um, after studying dozens of patients, and remember, these were patients who were coming into the hospital, so they all had advanced AIDS. Um, what I found was that there, they had no detectable uh, generals programmed to recognize HIV. And... In fact, that seemed to be the biggest hole in the immune repertoire in infection, which on some level made sense because we know that HIV infects, um, preferentially infects um, activated CD4 cells, which is exactly what these generals are. As they're getting programmed, they get activated, and that makes them susceptible to infection. So that's there was a general belief at the time that, that HIV because of the nature of the infection, um, just never elicited these generals. Um, but our thinking was that if, if Bob's immune response were actually controlling HIV, and if it was due to this really strong infantry we just detected, the only way that it could be, um, be effective would be if there were generals present as well. So we dusted off the assay that we'd done 10 years earlier, where, which had, where, in which we'd found, never found any detectable responses. And we used that test on Bob and found that he not only had these, these generals programmed to, um, coordinate an attack against HIV, he had phenomenal numbers of them. So this, to me, was the first time that, that, um, that I actually realized that these cells could even exist. And it all pointed towards his immune system uh, being able to control, uh, to control the virus. Um, but it, you know, it also raised really big questions because well, you know, everybody has an immune system. Why can't, why isn't everybody controlling? How, how is it that he ends up with this really potent response, um, and, um, and is able to, uh, 
control infection. Is it, is it truly due to that? Is it some other factor? What, what, what's going on that's really accounting for this and making him different than the vast majority of people who are HIV infected? Right. And through a series of uh, advances in, in the tools that are available, you're able ultimately to look for genetics that might explain this situation. What we wanted to do was really take an unbiased look and see if by examining people like Bob who controlled the infection on their own, whether we could find, use the genetic code as a, as something to tell us what was important to see if there was a genetic, um, it, whether it was due to genetic variability, um, that was unique to people who controlled that um, that was um, accounting for the differences in um, in the ability to control HIV infection. And there's a great part of the article where you're talking about one, one of the challenges is just finding sufficient numbers of these people to do the study with, and you're giving a talk to clinicians. And at that point, you just have a couple of these what we're calling elite HIV controllers, a couple of these people yeah. who can really deal with the infection. And you're, you're giving this talk to the clinicians and you raise a question. Yeah. So in order to do this kind of genetic testing, it, it really takes very large um, groups of people um, who have the outcome you're trying to examine uh, in order to get an adequate statistical sample. And, what we're talking about is generally thousands of patients. And so this really seemed initially not something we could possibly do because we only had a handful of patients like Bob that we'd identified. And there were other people like Steve Deeks at, um, at UCSF who had, had also identified um, some of these uh, so-called elite controllers. Um, but the idea of finding a thousand or more of these individuals in order to do what's called a genome-wide association study um, just seemed completely out of reach. And then I had been invited to give a, a lecture to a bunch of practicing clinicians in New York City, all of whom had big HIV practices. And I just kind of offhandedly, you know, thinking about Bob and telling his story, I said to the audience, has, has any of you ever seen somebody like this who has an undetectable viral load and has never been treated? And I was just absolutely shocked when more than half of the hands in the room went up. These physicians in private practice actually were seeing these patients. And it dawned on me that, of course, that was the case. These guys were not sick. They weren't coming to the hospital. They were still out with their primary care doctors. They'd been diagnosed with HIV. And and uh, as I began then during the break to talk to some of these doctors, they said, yeah, they, the patients would, um, you know, they keep coming and saying, you know, what's going on with me? And the doctors would say, well, we don't really know, but you're incredibly lucky and um, you don't seem to be progressing and you have an undetectable viral load. So um, it became immediately clear to me that if we could network among physicians and, and nurses taking care of patients across the country, that we could probably get to the requisite numbers, anticipating that a sample size, if it was, a, if there truly was a strong genetic impact, 
that if we could get a thousand patients with uh, who controlled HIV and compare that to a couple thousand people who didn't control HIV, that we should be able to get an answer. And so that was really what um, what started us down the line of of a genetic study to try and get an unbiased look. And the the idea there, just so that you'll understand how these things are done, it's called a genome-wide association study. There are three billion nucleotides in the HIV genome, um, and it's uh, it's an incredible task to sequence all of those to look for variability. But it turns out that there are certain areas of the genome um, where most of the variability occurs, and it can be it, there. There are certain nucleotides, the building blocks of the genome, that can be often one of two different flavors. And the idea behind a genome-wide association study is to look at those what are called single nucleotide polymorphisms, and you can define most of the variability in the human genome by measuring a million or, or, or so of those SNPs, and then to find out which, are there any SNPs that are consistently one flavor in people that have a, a certain disease outcome and the other flavor in people who have the opposite outcome? So let me give you an example. You want to try and understand why a big dog is big and a small dog is small. So you get a whole bunch of DNA from big dogs and small dogs. You do this genome-wide association study measuring these SNPs, which is done in an automatic, automatic way on a, on a little chip that, um, now measures, you know, easily over a million, uh, of these single nucleotide polymorphisms from each dog. And then you ask, is there, is there any SNP that's consistently one flavor in a big dog and another flavor and the other flavor in the small dogs? And in fact, what they found when they did that study was there, there was a SNP that was always one form in a big dog and the opposite form in a small dog. And it lay, um, within the insulin-like uh, growth factor gene, which regulates cell growth. So there you have an answer to um, to why big dogs are big and small dogs are small, it ends up that it's a it's a variation in a gene that controls cell growth. So what we were trying to do with HIV was to see are there any SNPs that are always one variant in controllers and the and the opposite variant in progressors. Right. So that's the task at hand now. So you you're able to do that study with your human subjects. Yeah, so we, we recruited, in the end, we had about 300 collaborators on this, on this study, and we, we were able to get, um, uh, recruit patients from across the country. Many, probably the majority of them came from private practitioners. Um, and we also had help by recruiting people from, uh, Australia and Europe and South America. Um, that uh, through physicians there who had come across these these same kinds of patients, and we we relaxed the definition a little bit for this study. We said anybody with a viral load of below two thousand copies, we would consider a controller, and and um, anybody with a viral load above ten thousand copies, we would consider a progressor, and so that was able to let us stratify people into two groups. It was very easy to get the progressors because 
there were so many people progressing that 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 happened rapidly. But we were able then to get um, blood samples um, drawn at at all these different offices across the country and then shipped to Boston where we processed them and then subjected them to this SNP analysis. And when we did that, uh, we got what I thought was a really remarkable result. We got this incredibly strong signal in one gene, in one chromosome, chromosome 6, um, and nothing anyplace else. So, you know, we had initially thought, well, maybe there are a bunch of different reasons why people um, people do well. Some do well for this reason, others for that reason. But here was some genetic information that suggested there's something very similar in all of these people, and it mapped to the chromosome that um, uh, really encodes for a lot of different immune functions. So to us, that was that was really encouraging because it suggested that, in fact, it was something about the immune system, genetically determined, that was accounting for better control. And it gave us now a chance to try and figure out what that was. Now, we had, we had if you will, 300 SNPs that all showed up as positive. But there, there's something called linkage disequilibrium, which confounds the, the SNP analysis to some degree. Um, what these SNPs do is they tell you variability at a single locus, but because genetic material travels in groups, um, over time, these, what these SNPs are able to do is they're able to also tag variation at other sites so that you know that when you get a positive SNP, you know it's either that SNP, that, that nucleotide itself, or one of the other nucleotides that always co-varies with the SNP that you're measuring. And so we, we, we knew of these 300 that probably not all of them were independently significant, but probably some of them were tagging the same, the same variant that was, that was actually causal. So we did a, what's called a stepwise regression analysis. And in the end found out that there were only four that were independently associated with control, but we still only knew that of those four, that it was either the, the, the SNP that was actually being measured or one of the variants that it tags that was actually causal. So we needed to go further, and that meant that we needed to do, we needed to sequence the entire genetic code in that region in order to understand what it was that was, that was truly always different, um, in controllers versus progressors. Right. So you go ahead, you finally are able to do that. Well, the finally able to do that um, has a bit of an interesting twist to it as well, because medical students um, uh, in the in the program in Boston often do uh, a year or two of research during during medical school. We had an incredibly talented medical student who joined our team, uh, Sherman Gia, and Sherman. Um, on his own, uh, figured out that he could use existing sequence data and, and SNP data from lots of other studies that have been done in order to impute the sequence through the entire, um, HLA, uh, locus, uh, through this entire region of chromosome six that was showing up as positive. And so he did that and, um, and the remarkable finding there was that 
it really came down to, of the 3 billion nucleotides in the human genome, it really came down to just a handful of amino acids that uh, where the variability, you know, the different flavors of those amino acids was what was accounting for more rapid progression in some people and slow progression in others. The amino acids in the expressed proteins. Well, what, what he did was once he got the genetic code, uh, what he, he was able to determine the genetic code and then by, um, and then translate that into proteins. And that's what led us to these specific amino acids that were associated with control. And, and what was remarkable about this was that it was, it really, it, it was, it was amino acids that, um, line the binding groove of something called the HLA class one molecule. HLA molecules are on the surface of cells and they basically serve a function. Normally they would contain, um, self peptides, uh, derived from the cytoplasm of the cell in the peptide binding groove. But if a virus comes in and infects a cell, what the, that self peptide gets replaced with a viral peptide. And the immune system, when it sees a viral peptide in an HLA molecule, it knows that something bad is going on inside that cell, and it basically then uh, seeks out and destroys that cell. And so that was what was being pointed to by, by this observation, that the peptides, it was something about how the peptide was sitting in that groove that was making those infected cells highly visible to the immune system of people like Bob Massey. So it's this seemingly minor kind of steric effect. Yeah, and I, I want to stress that we, as with all studies, um, you know, you you learn some things and it and they um, and the studies generate more questions. We know that it's something about how the peptide is sitting there that's making the difference. What exactly that difference is, we don't yet know. But that's what we're, that's, but we know where to look now and know how to understand that. And in fact, in other studies that we're, um, that we've just completed, it, it seems that what happens is that it's the, the, the way that the peptide sits in that groove, um, allows it to be seen by the T cell receptor, um, on these killer cells and allows for very efficient killing. So, you know, that's all really fascinating it's an amazing story but the bottom line still is how can this knowledge be applied to all the people who are not controlling the hiv well that's the the the, the most important thing for people to realize is that although we've figured out that there's a mechanism by which hiv can be controlled in um in people uh the question is, how do you take that information and now turn it into something that can make everybody into an HIV controller? And we we don't yet know how to do that. I mean, it, um, God knows we all wish we did, but but we know that HIV can be controlled by the immune system. We we know the specific interaction that's accounting for that. And we now know where to focus our efforts to try and come up with ways to be able to elicit that kind of immune response in people who don't naturally have it. And 
I, I, I think this is the stepwise nature of, of scientific discovery. You know, what we're seeing with HIV is that it's slowly revealing its secrets. This is another secret that it's now revealed. And we're, we're marching forward with a lot more focus, um, uh, now that we, now that we know exactly what the, the controlling mechanisms are. I, I should also say that there are lots of other things that probably play into this. Um, you know, the immune system works as a system. So this is a key part of it, but it, it, Understanding that that this in the end is the it is a mechanism that uh, appears to be accounting for control allows us now to think about not just these th- this particular interaction but the other the other parts of the immune system that feed into making the system work that can hopefully tweak it in such a way as to as to improve the efficiency of this in um, this particular response in in everybody bruce walker's article controlling hiv is in the july issue of scientific american magazine That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can find info about the upcoming transit of Venus across the sun coming your way on June 5th or 6th, depending on where you are on our little planet. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American's Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 